to the Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast, Episode 2, Mary Marie, by Eleanor H. Porter. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from one century ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we'll be exploring these gems from 100 years ago. As a reminder, this book and all of the books we discuss on this podcast are available for free download from the Gutenberg Project. A link is in the podcast description. Before we begin tonight's episode, a little housekeeping. I want to thank everyone who listened to our first episode, and a special thanks to those of you who uh, provided feedback. This podcast is a fun project for Mike and I, and while we are not looking to turn this into a commercial endeavor, we are never going to make money on this ever. Says you. Okay, okay, one day we believe this could pay for itself with all the free software we're using. But other than that, we're going to make no money. But we want to put out a high-quality podcast that's worth your time. So again, thank you to all listeners, and please stay subscribed. All right, with that out of the way, back to today's topic. Mike, before we dive into today's book, why don't you tell us a little about the author? My pleasure. So John, as you know, before we read these books, we don't really know who the person is. It's part of the surprise. Well, what I found out was a couple uh, historical notes first, and then something that I think uh, surprised me, and it will probably surprise you. So our author, Eleanor, was born in 1868. Uh, She died in 1920. She was age 51. She had what was called Mayflower ancestry. She was actually a descendant of the governor of the Plymouth Colony, William Bradford, who was a pretty famous Puritan. She developed tuberculosis, which is why she passed away in 1920. Okay, so she grows up. She's very artistic. She was artistic in a classic sense. She loved the arts. She loved music, poetry, etc. Her father was a pharmacist. He had her musically trained from a very young age. Her mother was struck ill also at an early age and was considered an invalid for most of Eleanor's life. She actually was also struck ill when she was in school, so she ended up receiving private tutoring for much of her youth. After graduating from the New England Conservatory of Music, which is a pretty reputable institution, she then taught music for several years. So she's 24 years old. She marries this guy, John Lyman Porter, who was a Boston businessman, and they moved up and down the East Coast, which was not unusual for businessmen at the time, and eventually they settled in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts to take care of her mother or at least that was part of it. So she quickly switches to writing fiction full-time. This had been her passion, uh, really, and she wanted to devote her time to it, particularly since she had some time to do so. So remember, she's living at home with her mom. Her husband is off uh, doing business. So between 1907 and 1915, she published 200 short stories, with her first real success coming in the form of this story called Cross Current, which is a story about a girl who transforms the lives of three bachelor brothers with whom she goes to live in Boston. Okay. So in 1913, here's the twist. She publishes a book called Pollyanna. This is what rockets her to literary stardom. Her character was- so, Wait, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Yeah. Just over there. Because when I went to read this book, I knew nothing about this author, nothing about anything. And the first review I saw was, Mary Marie, it's like Pollyanna, but worse. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh, good. This is going to be a great read. So, okay. And, and, and then I found out it was the author and that, that explained a lot why the review was like Pollyanna, but worse. I'm okay, not so going to say if that's an accurate review yet or not. Podcast listeners, gotta you've got to wait for the end. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, John, that ricocheted around my mind. It has been in my noggin for the last month. <laughs> Again, can't say one way or the other yet. So 
I think that accurately sums up how people felt about Pollyanna, though, right? We all know this is this delightful, wonderful girl, and my God, is it annoying. So that became its own byword. Uh, to be a Pollyanna means you're so cloyingly good that it's almost a pejorative term. By 1920, that book had been reprinted 46 times and had more than 100 Pollyanna clubs. Okay, so here's the deal. This book, Mary Marie, is one of the last books she published, if not the last book she published before her death. It was (laughs) well-received, reviews to the side, but didn't approach the level of fame she achieved with Pollyanna when it's actually printed after her death. Okay, so that's it in a nutshell. So so I was doing a little kind of background research on this as well, and I go to the website goodreads.com, who has a lot of information, especially about a lot of more obscure books that you can't necessarily find on on Amazon or even Wikipedia. But and they had – so just as, as an author, Eleanor H. Porter has 3.96 out of five stars. So, so not bad. That's not a bad rate. It's not, not like right. top – but that was out of 92,000 reviews. So much like Amazon, I'm sure half of those are fake, but she would be considered an Amazon bestseller. Uh, it, but it was very interesting because it also shows that she has, uh, let me check my note here, uh, 129 distinct works. I'm guessing some of the short stories you were talking about were packaged together, obviously. But I was thinking when I saw that a lot like last month when we talked, a very prolific author. I, you know? Absolutely. I, I mean, again, you go back to modern authors, a good modern author knocking out a dozen books would be a very successful author. Mm-hmm. And then you look at last week and this week, you're talking about hundreds of mm-hmm. works between these two authors on a typewriter or handwritten and then yeah. published. It's uh, pretty amazing, but we're also in the realm of the bestsellers. So, so you need to compare that and contrast. So this book I think was somewhere in the range of like fifth or sixth bestselling of 1920. So again, best-selling author, not necessarily the best author, but certainly a well-known author at the time. And people would seek out her book. Oh, they need something to read. They know this author. They go and they buy that book. And you know, you just reminded me of something that I'm actually going to look up before we conclude tonight. I wonder if at the time, much like we had the pulp novels that were done, 30s, 40s, 50s, if they actually got paid by the word. So modern authors, typically you've got a contract, you write, you do a couple things, they see how well, and then you get another one it's possible that at the time they were getting paid because of how much they did write. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to see if I can look that up. I'm not sure it's the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. That would probably explain, especially the, the sheer number of short stories. Although short stories were a lot more popular back then, again, because it was just a, there wasn't the television. There was, there was radio, but it wasn't nearly as widespread. And so people liked bite-sized bits of entertainment. They weren't quite so down to like, Twitter level bite size, but they wanted something they could sit down and read now, not a novel. Would this be the equivalent of Quibi in the 1920s? (laughs) No wonder short stories failed. (laughs) But we digress. (laughs) Mildly. So anyway, obviously well-known author, well-published author. and, And I think if I read the dates correctly, yeah, this was published a few months after her death. So she must have completed it, handed over the manuscript, and then her publisher finished it off, and it still went on to be a a bestseller. And I know, I guess, you were talking about the Pollyanna Clubs or whatever. There are dozens of books written in that series, so to speak, I guess, that were done by other authors who then took that character and continued to expand that universe. Like her hater, she left a lasting legacy for, uh, for writers and fan fiction writers alike, I guess. (laughs) She was the Marvel Comics of the time. Man, I see the parallels here. 
I also read that some of these Pollyanna clubs, you know, I'm sure some of them were serious. Most of them were almost sarcastic in nature, making fun of Pollyanna as their club, which is sounds like a very modern thing to do. And I could totally see if the 1920s are like the 2020s, you could see a lot of cynicism just rolling through. Oh, no, this is our local Pollyanna club where we get together and just knock back a few and wish it wasn't. <laughs> So, yeah, I do that at the local pub. And by the way, John, I think I see some social organizing for you in the future. <laughs> We're forming the, uh, the the Gutenberg Deep Dive Pollyanna Club, where we get together on Friday nights and, and have a few <laughs> drinks. So you're all welcome to join our new Pollyanna Club. All right. So for those of you who have not read the book yet, I'm now going to do a quick plot summary here. And I will give a spoiler alert in the middle because I wouldn't want to ruin this uh, this wonderful book. Um Pollyanna, but worse. Uh, okay, so here's the story. It's a story of a divorced couple, really, uh, written from the viewpoint of their teenage daughter. And she's writing all this down in her diary, although she keeps calling it about the book she's going to publish. She's 13 when we start. I think she's about 15 or so when we get to the end of the main story. And I felt like we turned 70. It, it was, uh, well, and she writes as a 13-year-old teenage girl, which at first I thought, this is interesting because we'll watch. I, I expected her to age quickly through the book. I thought it was going to be a journal, like describing a life. And so, okay, we'll have a chapter written as a 13-year-old girl. I could deal with this for a chapter. And then it just went on of reading as a 13-year-old girl. And it got, it, it got very old very fast. Now, the other thing that isn't necessarily a criticism, but because she's the narrator, she's an unreliable narrator. So you only know what she knows. You only see what she sees. And she even makes conclusions out loud that are wrong, but they're based on her understanding of the world. So you're seeing what a young teenager knows about the world, which is not necessarily reliable. The book centers on the narrator and she's known as Mary Marie because her parents couldn't decide on what to name her, which was not really important to the story. But then it became important because she developed a split personality disorder. As her parents divorced, they each had a different expectation of her. Her father was more stern and serious and businesslike, and her mother was, uh, I'll use the term flighty, but I would say more, more of a socialite. When she was with her mother, who wanted to name her Marie, she was all about singing and dresses and, and the music and the arts and just, just living life. And when she was with her father, who was an astronomer and a serious uh, college professor, later on the, the president of the university, it was all about quiet, contemplative, speak when spoken to, I think it was what I kept thinking in terms of the, the childhood that she would have. And that's when she was known as Mary. And so she spends half the year with one, half the year with the other, going back and forth. When she's with one, she basically changes her personality to be what she thinks that parent wants because she wants to make that parent happy. And you have an entire year cycle about that until eventually she's with her father. She's being married for so long. She just wants to be Marie by gosh. And she has a nervous breakdown. And while her father doesn't change how he responds to her within that year, because it takes time to contemplate your daughter's happiness, he... <laughs> He does consider that later on, and she goes back to her mother and tells her what, how horrible it was and what, what father expected of her. But you start to see the parents as they are trying to live out their own life without their, their, their previous partner realizing what they were missing, that each partner was kind of half of a whole. I'm not going to say any qualms about that. I think that's a very reasonable view of marriage in general is that is that it's a partnership and different people bring different things. So I was I was 
perfectly fine with that. It became very interesting, and actually, I didn't I didn't mind the part uh, later on where the mother starts to try to make Marie more like Mary. You need to learn through self-discipline. Life is not just one big party. And you need to be ready when you go back to your father. I expect you to behave as a young lady would. And so she gets her these, you know, sad looking gray dresses and clunky shoes. And and she t- teaches that she has to see, you know, yes, please. No, thank you. All that sends her back to her father. She gets back to her father's house and is like, oh, I got rid of uh, rid of your aunt because she was too stuffy. And you need to learn to live a life. And enough of these drab dresses. You're going to live as Marie. You're going to be the life of the party. Because deep down, I think he was worried he was stifling the part he used to love about his wife. He was stifling that in his daughter. Okay, so all good. Here's where we do the spoiler. Okay, so for those of you who can't figure out what's going to happen because it's being written by the author of Pollyanna. Um, <laughs> pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> They're all going to die. <laughs> it turns into a horror flick. And uh, no, you know, so, you know, you have, you have a teenage girl who at this point is 15 and is being torn between both of her parents and what they want. And she's trying to figure out, is mother going to remarry? Is father going to remarry? Who's going to be my new mother, my new father? Who am I supposed to be around these people? And in doing so, she almost causes a little emotional breakdown in each one of her parents. I, I don't want to say that, you know, her, her whining and complaining caused this, but, but it did. And so, and for each of her parents, they kind of have a little breakdown and begin discussing with her how they messed up, how they destroyed their relationship. The father talks about how he loved his wife because when he first saw her, she was just like the embodiment of life. She was just excitement and life, and, and, and he loved being around that, and he just stifled that. And the wife is like, I was so selfish, I didn't realize it can't just be about me and us having parties and having a good time. He had a career. This is an important man. He was doing good work, and I was like belittling him for not focusing on me. And so they, they both recognized, reasonably so, that a partnership required them each be an equal partner. So, of course, Mary Marie organizes it so that the dad can come over to visit the mom. They visit like twice off camera and they get remarried. Okay. And you know what? That's that's fine. It's all well and good. Motherhood and apple pie and a happy ending. The end. But it's not. It's not. And I looked at my down at my Kindle mic and I said, huh, that's funny. They got back together and I'm at 80 <laughs> percent. <laughs> By the way, the entirety of how John was describing getting through this book, not pages, mind you, uh, just the percent and 0.01 and 0.02. Yes. Dear, dear listener, I would send Mike a text. Uh, I'm, I'm only 32%. I, I've got to get to 40 tonight. Um, so I took it like cough syrup. Pollyanna, but worse. Yep. Um, so. All right, so here's where it should have ended. You know, fade to black, reopen. At this point, it's now, I think, about 12 years, 13 years or so fast-forwarded, and Mary Marie finds her old diary and reads through it and decides that she needs to help flesh out the story a bit because she's married and considering divorce. And she goes around explaining how she met this guy, and he was the life of the party, and he's rich, and he's he's wonderful, and he's an artist. And what's interesting is you look at like the parallels between her romance of this guy and her father's, both of which were way too fast. They never got to know each other at all. They jump into a marriage right away. And as soon as a kid comes along, that complicates things. Well, duh. Okay. It's, <laughs> you know, 
you know, we want to, she wants to be having a discussion, you know, she explains all of this and you lose 10% of the book to her explaining that whole history. And she's going to go tell her mom how she's going to get divorced. Because the first person you tell when you get divorced is not the person you're going to divorce. It's your mother. You travel to your house, spend five days in attic writing a book, and then tell your mom how you're going to get divorced. But her mother cuts her off. Now, if I had been writing this, it would have been an excellent ending discussing the importance of partnership and the importance of communication and the importance of how two people can be very different, but they have to recognize the strengths of the other. Instead, her mother gives the, won't someone please think of the children? And she and the entire argument the mother makes is that I got divorced and you suffered and you don't understand how you suffered. And again, that's off camera, so you won't know. You never wrote it down, so the reader doesn't know either. But you're messed up in the head because I got divorced. So you can't get divorced because that'll mess up your child's head. So don't get divorced. And Mary's like, you're right. <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> okay. So metaphorically, literally, whatever way you want to take that. <laughs> did I did I miss any critical parts like, no, in that no. story? Okay. I, the only thing I might add, which maybe we'll we'll be discussing. When the mother is away, she did have numerous suitors. I mean, apparently she was still quite the catch. So that does kind of play in a little bit with some of the back and forth with the father. But, uh, you know, obviously nothing much comes of it. Well, yeah, I, you know, it was maybe, I guess, the foreshadowing, of course, of the relationship. Although it didn't have to necessarily be foreshadowing for them to get back together. Was just that they were both very interested in what the other was doing. Are they happy? Are they seeing someone else? I hope they're not seeing. Them. Tell me more about the violinist. Tell me more about the rich man with the car. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was sometimes very painful to read in a fourteen-year-old's voice this back and forth and what she complained and what was important and what wasn't. No, I, I so, totally agree. <laughs> so now, all that being said. Let's jump into kind of some of my discussions here of of kind of some themes and plots, because while I'm not going to say I enjoyed the book, I will say that it made me think a lot about my marriage and relationships and how, by God, if these people would just sit down and have a conversation, maybe things would go better. I, maybe that's my takeaway instead of just brooding for years and then just saying, I guess we're done. I'll make sure to not let that happen again. But if it does, my teenage daughter will correct everything. I hope that's not the lesson <laughs> to be taken away. Well, we get to lecture that teenage daughter later on, right? So there's a yeah. plus here. <laughs> that is nice. But, but you know, but the first thing I thought of when I was reading this, and I was about 10 or 15% is I said, who is the target audience of this mm, book? Yeah, I'm not the target of this book. And I really thought at first, oh, you know what? This is social commentary on divorce. Because because it, it was my uneducated assumption that divorce was extremely rare in the 1920s. Mine too. Who okay. thinks of the 1920s and thinks, oh, these are concepts that were contemporary to the author of the day? I you certainly know, I, wouldn't know. I, I assume that just on the, the, the more religious, more conservative type of country at the time that it was would be very, very anti-divorce. But then I went and I looked it up and it was talking about how one in seven marriages ended in divorce in 1915. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not a small number. I mean, you're, you're still talking double digit percentages. It's not necessarily as high it is, as it is now, but that's not a, oh, there's the one lady in town who got divorced. Mm-hmm. And in fact, thinking back at the beginning of the book, Mary Marie talks about how there's lots of other parents who got divorced depending on the school she was at. Mm-hmm. And so, so, okay, so this is not going to be a social commentary on anti-divorce. So again, 
who's the target audience of this book? And I, I should I, I want to throw in too that she even calls out the different types of socially acceptable and unacceptable divorces. So she actually says to her classmates at one point, oh no, it's not that type of divorce. Uh, they were both fine with it and they're both sort of high class social people. So, you know, it's not a it's not something I'm ashamed of. Interestingly, she does end up at a school where she is judged somewhat because of that, but only because of one mean girl, which is sort of a cross current of the book too, which actually felt surprisingly contemporary as well. <laughs> Let me do a quick aside here because I was doing a little research about marriage just to kind of fill in the gaps here. And I came across this section here talking about common law marriages. Prior to 1902, common law marriages were permitted in New York. They were then abolished between 1902 and 1908. And then through a legislative error, an accidental, you know, law that gets passed. The I guess they all, you know, I guess they didn't read laws back then either before they passed them. Um, it re-permitted them again between 1908 and 1933. We accidentally made common law marriage a thing again in New York for a quarter century. But because because it's a state law and not a federal law, different states, different things, and New York said that they would acknowledge any common law marriages elsewhere. And so I read about this case where this couple would go away every once a year for a weekend in Pennsylvania, where they lived together for the weekend and renounced themselves husband and wife, which made them common law married in Pennsylvania, which made them married in New York accidentally. And there was an entire court case about whether or not they were actually married when they never got married, didn't want to be married. And there was no common law where they live, but just by presenting themselves as a married couple in another state, they wound up accidentally being married. And I thought that was a really fascinating bit of law. It Entirely unrelated to the book, but just one of those things. I'm like, this is crazy. Um, so <laughs> well, I, thought- I, I think the parents <laughs> in the book would have been better served by doing that. <laughs> I could go to Vegas for a weekend and not have to pay Elvis. <laughs> so I was. I went the, the other little bit of research I did though said that actually the, the nation's first no fault divorce bill wasn't passed till 1970. So I don't know what kind of divorce they would have gotten if they had to claim a divorce, claim a, an incompatibility. Somewhere, um, I'm, I I didn't do any more deep dive on that, but but again, trying to figure out what the purpose of this book was, if it was social commentary, or if it was just an author knocking out another book. And maybe you're right. Maybe if it's just getting paid by the word, she pulled out a, a a couple scenes from her other books. I need a little girl. I need some parents who are or are not around, and I need to have stuff happens. And that's gonna be that's gonna be the story. I don't so, know, Mike. Do I, I think you raise a really so there were a couple of things that I thought were really interesting that you just raised. So first off, you know, who's it for, right? And I wonder, so she got married in her relatively early 20s, right? And okay, whatever. And she gets to Pollyanna and she gets to some of those things. And a lot of the books that she writes, clearly the characters, which are almost always sort of an interesting, unique, relatively positive, but very tough and, and gritty female character surrounded by tougher folks around her that win out. So there is a bit of a theme to what she does. My assumption was that this would reflect something that was more related to her and her personal story. The funny thing is, no matter what I read, I didn't see a parallel to that. I suspect a lot of that was the case, but was sort of behind the scenes. So if you look at authors, right, they're either they're either plotting it out in a fictional world, if it's fiction, or they're targeting it towards an audience and making points, or it's them, right? And it's almost autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. I think it's probably autobiographical in some ways, but I also wonder because there really was, I mean, that last part, right? And I'll be honest with you, it was the part that I probably enjoyed the most 
somewhat because I really needed to get out of 13 year old girldom. <laughs> it was t- two <laughs> nights. I had had enough. So I was like, well, this is an adult at least, but I have a feeling that it was her, you know, and, and what was she? She was uh, in her thirties or forties at this point. This is somebody who I think was starting to feel time creep up on her. And the way that I read that book was almost like her own wish fulfillment in a weird way. And it, it did feel a little more mature than some of the themes of Pollyanna. Like you, I thought it was going to be social commentary and it didn't end up being that per se. In fact, and this I think is one of the big weaknesses of the book, I didn't think she had any strong central themes. There, there was nothing so consistent. There was Now, let's be honest. I think that we're conditioned to that kind of payoff. I suspect that it wouldn't have mattered when a book was written. Everybody's conditioned to that throughout time. But, you know, look at Shakespeare, right? He had payoff all over the place. But in her case, I really do think it was more of a reflection of her own desire to express herself than it was to really make a point. And in fact, I wonder if that contributed to the fact that it was not nearly as popular as Pollyanna, because I think it was probably slightly more emotionally complex. I, I mean, it's a guess. And it's kind of, we're a hundred years out now. So it's kind of tough to really get it down. I did find, and again, you mentioned something here and I totally agree with it. It was almost like there was complexity without enjoyment. So you can make something super complex. And here I'll look at, you know, some of our favorite authors, right? So you talk about George R.R. R. Martin. Okay, we got it. There's a lot going on. 90% of it at a certain point you want to burn in a dumpster uh, because you don't need it to make a point. You don't need it to write well. But it was complex enough where I thought some of the emotions were recognizable. And I have to say, that's what surprised me so much. You know, like I could kind of see not all the nonsense with the father mooning over the mother and not wanting to do this and his aunt, which I thought was, or his sister coming. I thought that was really odd. I would not have my sister come and berate my daughter. That's an odd thing. Uh, but The idea of sort of coming to a self-realization. So clearly, because her mother in the book, right? They got married when she was in her late teens. Um, She was she was like eighteen when they got married, and he was late twenty, wait, late twenties or so. So so clearly a big age gap. And they got married over like a week. He went to a conference, met her at like a party, stayed for a week at their house, said, "All right, well," and just came home married. And so and so (laughs) with her. Oh, maybe the lesson is don't marry someone after a week that, you know, you should know someone a little longer. And that's why they made their daughter wait like a whole three months to get married. (laughs) And then she's also having marriage issues. Well, you got to be sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, and I did think that was interesting because again, product of times, certainly at the time men tended to be older because they had to provide, they certainly were you know, that sort of marriage, if not quite at that speed, was more common necessarily than same ages. And women did get married much earlier at the time. And of course, it was the 20s. So like you were saying before, right, is things were seemed much more contemporary at the time. And then the country, I'll focus on the US, really did go through a dynamic shift after that. So in a lot of ways, it was almost like the Victorian age in England, where you had a certain set of mores and social rules, and then it swings in another direction, and then it kind of swings back. So I can I can kind of see some of that happening, but I'll be honest, and, and I know we'll get to the grading in a little bit too, or, or our scores for this. I think that, I, and I haven't read all the Pollyanna books. 
I don't know that what? I will ever what? read you have <laughs> Pollyanna books. Folks, uh, just, you know, episode three, all of the other Pollyanna books. Join us next month when Mike will give us a synopsis <laughs> of the entire Pollyanna universe. Oh, and we will definitely be hosting a video cast where we watch nothing but the movies. That's <laughs> <laughs> <pretty> great. <laughs> that would be delightful. So, so the thing is, I feel like she kind of lost it a little bit. And you see this with authors. They get used to writing. They get in patterns of writing. And they sort of just dilute themselves. I wonder if that's what happened to her. Well, you know, and I was thinking one more thing where maybe this book didn't sell as well, too, is if she wrote it, obviously, it takes some time to write a book. I'm assuming it takes a while to write for you know, that, that she wrote this and then it still went through an editing process that she was just knocking it out and just like, here you go. It's done. And so- when she wrote it, may have been when the country was doing a little better, still in the war. At this point, we're starting to enter the Depression. And I know that divorce dropped significantly during the Depression because you don't want to make your life any harder. I may not like the person I'm living with, but at least the two of us can get together just enough money to keep a roof over our heads. It may have been a little too late to the party and to have a book about one rich gentleman and a woman from a rich family having some marriage problems and trying to get over them as they ship their daughter back and forth and buy her different outfits that may have struggled to gain some traction with a with a depression era audience so i think that's a fair point <laughs> and you know it's funny because a big portion of the book is when she goes to live with her mother half the year in boston uh, although even that didn't really last too long but she does describe how different boston was from the more rural area and reading some of her background, as far as the author goes, I feel again, if there's one audience for it, I almost think she was, she herself was the audience for it as well as the progenitor of it, because I think she was describing the Boston she kind of recalled. Uh, and she was describing rural areas. She kind of recalled not unusual to put yourself in your work, little unusual when that's the full extent of it. So I think in a lot of ways, it was almost like wish fulfillment for her to kind of return to that era and then view it from there. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd say a little more criticism is that I think that I would have liked some more detail on some of the characters. I thought I thought the father was pretty well fleshed out, although I'd like to know a little more about his work. But that's just that's just because I'm an engineer. So of course, I want to hear about what the scientist was discovering. He's stargazing in the telescope. Yeah. And he had and a house. And I wonder about the author actually had no more additional knowledge about about uh, astronomy. You you don't learn a whole lot about the mother, other than that, maybe it's because that she was still pretty hollow character because she got married so young and then just dropped into an unhappy marriage and then fled it a decade later. There's not a whole lot to that character, but I would have liked a little more in more depth to some of the characters. I don't mind some throwaway characters. That's that just happens, but I would like a little more depth to characters, but then our narrator is 13 and they don't understand the depth of character. So maybe that's why you just didn't fully get it either. So I don't know if it's, if it's an act of, if it's because of the writing or it's because the author didn't bother giving more depth. Okay. You, you and I, gave more character development to a character in Diablo <laughs> that we played when we were 13. Then I think she got, I'm going to be harsher than I think she gave to a single other character. In fact, name another character outside of the, the main character that you feel was a, was a well fleshed out character, not even full, but a well fleshed out character. I can't, I can't. I, I you agree. Know, you've got an aunt who's mean replaced by a cousin. Who's not. Yep. You've got, you've got a dad who just says, Oh dear, that's so sad. <laughs> and a sister who says he was a jerk, forget him. And that's the extent of the entire 
yep. personalities laid upon these these cardboard cutout people who need to be in place for the scenes to work. I, I totally agree. And you know, maybe maybe the well was poisoned a little bit here because we read the great impersonation before, and I thought that author did such a remarkably good job with these really interesting characters, even though it yeah. was, you know, very quickly capped off. So maybe it's just you know, you read something like that that feels so rich, and then you come into this, and it's such a different type of book that it's it's worse off by comparison. It was hollow and short, but felt long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's like Pollyanna, but worse. Now we have two great reviews that we can refer back to. <laughs> All right. Do you have any other themes for us, or do you want to get into our new rating system? I think we can go into the new rating system. <laughs> All right. So one of the bits of feedback that I completely agreed with is Mike and I want to give each book we read some sort of rating. Obviously, it's all subjective. But just to give you an idea about what we thought, all wrapped up in a number. And so without further ado, we're going to introduce the new GDD rating scheme, which will be a score from one to 10, as well as though we have to say if we'd recommend the book or not and to who. So uh, without further ado, Mike, you have the honors. So, okay, I'm going to start off with the number. I give it a four. So it's a four out of 10. Uh, It's on the worst side, but it's not the worst thing I've ever read, but it's certainly not good. I think it might be due to my own modern cynicism, uh, but I think the conceit of using a young girl's voice grows old so quickly that I really struggled to keep my interest. I don't think it was a bad read. I think it had two saving graces. It had a, I, I will say, I thought the denouement was, was touching towards the end. And I thought the real ending uh, where she is reflecting back as an adult was interesting. Frankly, that was the part I enjoyed the most because I feel like she was speaking most authentically there. You know, she didn't seem totally beaten down, but she certainly didn't seem happy. And she was giving things a little nuance that I thought was lacking. So really, I think it was the voice through the book that just grew on me or or grew old to me. Whatever she was trying to get across in the book, I think was probably better covered in other books she had done. So would I recommend it? No. (laughs) Um, And But if I did, it would probably be to contemporaries of the character in the book. Uh, because there are some fair lessons to be learned from viewing things a little more broadly and trying to be a little more understanding of your parents as people, not just as these character caricatures that we create of them. Okay. I'm going to agree with you. I would have given it – originally I wrote down a six, having just discussion to, uh, discussed how hollow the characters are. I'm going to knock that back down to a five. <laughs> so that's a five out of ten for me. Would I recommend the book as just like a weekend reader to take to a beach? Absolutely not. It is not a page turner. It is not the kind of thing you're excited about picking up and finding out what happens. If I was going to recommend it, I think similar to you, I think if there was a book club for teenagers, if it was something that a maybe a teacher of relationships wanted to use as just like a, all right, What's messed up about these people? What's messed up about these people? Uh, let's talk about bullying in schools. Let's talk about, you know, I, I think that there are themes inside the book that you could wrap interesting discussions around. But that doesn't mean the book is good. It just means the book contains interesting themes. So I would not recommend it to anyone unless they needed a book to introduce a theme for a discussion that they have in a small group somewhere. And, and you know, John, I'm, I'm going to throw one more thing just because I'm – in all honesty, I'm trying to be more reflective. 
so we are two same age guys, you know, with somewhat similar life experiences. I could certainly see that maybe somebody else reading it would have a totally different takeaway. You know, maybe it's a woman who's reading it who sees it very differently than we do. Maybe it's somebody who's younger or older. Because as we're both talking, I'm thinking, you know, not that we are the arbiters of of everybody's opinion. God knows. <laughs> Hard to believe that that's not the case. <laughs> but But I do think that there are some things that maybe other people would see. So I, I'm definitely curious for, for our dear listeners, you know, I'm really looking forward to your feedback on this because, uh, you know, whereas the last book I think, you know, was fun and I think we had a lot of different viewpoints on it. John and I are so similar in this one. I'd love to have some diversity of response on this. I, I'd love to hear from you guys. So yeah, please, please burn up our comments. Yeah. We have contact information in the podcast description. Please shoot us messages, or if you want to, uh, if you'd like to come on this uh, international podcast recording, we we would happy to have guests come on board. We'll bring you down to the studio here and uh, and record anything you have to say about this book. Just don't be weirded out when we invite you to the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, that just about wraps it up for tonight. Uh, join us next month when we're going to review The Man of the Forest. A link to the book, as well as our contact information, is in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle. To the Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. And most especially to the Gutenberg Project. And until next month. Thank you, and good night.